myself in that introduction. It is good to be here this morning to renew fellowship with you in New Hampshire. I always enjoy coming back to this church and to fellowship with the pastor, with the elders, and uh, with our brother Rich and Kelly. Thankful for our brother Rich's friendship, for his taxiing me around this weekend. When I think of Rich and Kelly, I think of the words of the Canadian author, Lucy Maud Montgomery, who spoke of people who were of the race that knows Joseph, i.e. kindred spirits. If you know the first chapter of Exodus, there arose a new generation in Egypt who did not know Joseph. They were not kindred spirits. But when I think of Rich and Kelly, I think of those who are kindred spirits. And it is always good to renew fellowship with them. It is good to hear how the Lord is blessing the work here. Very encouraging and challenging to my own heart. And we keep you in our prayers and thank the Lord for what he has been doing here at Grace Covenant Church and with the pastor here. I'd say a little more tonight with regard to my work and my family, uh, but I want to turn this morning to the scriptures of truth, to Jonah, a little prophecy of Jonah, and the chapter 2. I want to read from chapter 1, verse 17, to, to include the narrative of Jonah's incident with the great fish. And the subject this morning, as our bulletin says, is from the belly of Sheol, Jonah's prayer from the belly of Sheol. Let's read together Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, down to the end of chapter 2. The word of the Lord says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Yet I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. 
What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. Let's look to the Lord briefly as we come to his word. Our Father, we come this morning in need of the power of the Spirit of God to apply the word of God, to help in the preaching of your word and to apply that, that word to our hearts. Press it upon us, we pray. Melt it into our hearts and may we leave this house of worship this morning knowing that God has met with us and that we have met with him in our Savior's name. Amen. Every child, I suspect, and I am pleased to see so many children here this morning, I suspect every child has heard of how Jonah was swallowed by this great fish. And the story of how this reluctant prodigal prophet ran off from God to avoid preaching the word of God. He is the only prophet in all of scripture who refused to take the message that the Lord had given him. And he stands out unique among the prophets of Israel and Judah as the one who refused and persisted in that refusal. And as part of his recovery, and I emphasize that, as part of his recovery and correction, the Lord appointed a big fish to come up out of the sea and swallow Jonah up. For three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of this fish. Now, Jonah is there, of course, because of disobedience. But I want us to put that aside for now. I want us to ignore the fact that Jonah is there because of disobedience. And I want us to take the prayer of Jonah in chapter 2 as the cry of this prophet from the belly of Sheol to God. And the reason I want us to, to set it aside from the fact, uh, from the circumstances, if you like, is because I think, for the most part, we uh, have this perception that God was punishing Jonah. He was swallowed by a fish because God was punishing him. I want us to disabuse ourselves of that idea. God was correcting Jonah. The fish was a deliverance, as we're going to see. The fish was a deliverance from a watery grave. So Jonah is delivered by this great fish. But the circumstances are really immaterial. Because if you look through the scriptures, and it is interesting, as you read through scripture and you discover that Man, as Job said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's our lot in life. 
That's our lot in life. And so I think we, we make the mistake too often of trying to read into the providences of God when we are cast into the belly of Sheol, when we are cast into the valley of the shadow of death, when we are cast into, as Bunyan called it, the valley of humiliation, we try to read into the providence of, providences of God and seek to, to think, what have I done? What have I done that God is punishing me? And that ought not to be the case. That ought not to be the case. You might look back in hindsight and learn that the Lord, in hindsight, has had been directing you or delivering you or dealing with you on a particular case. But do not, we ought not wreck our brains and torture ourselves trying to discover what we have done because God does not punish his children. He corrects them. If you're a Christian, your punishment has been taken in full, in totality, by Jesus Christ on the cross. He does not punish his children. He corrects them. You look at David in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. David is wrestling with God because of sin. But you look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, and Paul is wrestling with this thorn in the flesh, not because of anything he had done, but to keep him from being conceited. A, a messenger of, of Satan to buffet him in case he would become conceited. John, the apostle, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos simply because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, because he was a Christian. And Job, contrary to much popular opinion, Job suffered horrendously simply to show the power of faith, the power of faith in God to deliver him. And so as we come to this prayer of, jo of Jonah this morning, let us remember that this could be a prayer of any one of us. If I had read this psalm, this prayer of Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through to 9, and not identified it as Jonah's prayer, many perhaps would have thought it was taken out of the Psalms. In fact, as we're going to see, right throughout this, in these eight verses, Jonah quotes directly from the Psalms ten times. Ten times. And so it's really a psalm, as we're going to see, a little later on. I want us to look at this prayer from the belly of Sheol in three simple questions. How did Jonah feel? How did Jonah endure what he endured? And how did Jonah praise in the end? The first thing I want us to see is how did Jonah feel? Now before you choke on your own saliva. It is not, I am not Dr. Phil. I'm not Joel Osteen uh, going into your feelings. But I want to make this point. I want to make this point. That more often than not, our feelings are not a good reflection of reality. 
But Jonah, look at verse 4, he said, I am driven away from your sight. This is how he felt. This is where his mind was. This is where, this is the wrestling of his emotion. He, was, he felt he was driven away from God's sight. And of course, as the psalmist tells us, where can I go? But you're not there. And so Jonah was not outside of the sight of God. And you look over at, at the passage that was read earlier in the call to worship in chapter in Second Corinthians chapter 1. This great passage where the Apostle Paul is comforting the Corinthian Christians. I'm not sure which version the pastor was reading from, but it's a, it's, it made a translation of the reflexive pronoun that we had this uh, sense in ourselves. The ESV says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So the Apostle Paul here is saying, this is how we felt the situation in Asia, the affliction, verse 8, that we experienced in Asia was so intense. For we were, and look as how he packs this punch, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So utterly burdened. We felt, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And yet he hadn't. He hadn't. But that feeling, the Lord uses that feeling and that weakness of humanity for his own glory and for our good. And the Apostle Paul felt like this and the Lord used this weakness, this feeling, as verse 9 tells us. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, beloved, God condescends to address our feelings. Now, your feelings may be out of whack. You may be tortured and tormented by misinformation and by the intensity of the struggle in which you find yourself. But God condescends to address those feelings. He knows our frame. He knows that we are weak. And so it is important that we understand how Jonah felt here. And anyone who has been through the valley of the shadow of death or through the valley of humiliation can relate to the, 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 the sense that Jonah had and the feeling that Jonah had here in this chapter. He is conscious, and I think this is important to notice, I don't believe Jonah was dead. He is conscious of his situation. He knows the situation. He knows that there are weeds, verse 5, wrapped about his head. He knows that. He knows that he is underwater, verses 3 and 6. He is submarine. 
And he knows, verse 2, that he is in the belly of a fish. And I think the use of the word the belly of Sheol is a play on the idea that he's in the belly of a whale, the belly of, which is in his experience, the belly of Sheol. But where, that's where he was geographically. That's where he was physically. But where was he emotionally? Where was he mentally and spiritually? And the situation was so extreme that he felt and he identified it as the belly of Sheol. That phrase is unique to Jonah. Nowhere else in Scripture will you find that phrase. The Old Testament word Sheol refers to the place of the dead. Simply that place of the dead. But the word Sheol is often used to speak of the dire circumstances in which we find ourselves. It does not describe the location, but it describes the felt experience of the individual. It identifies the lowest point. It identifies the abyss. It identifies the deepest distress of soul. It is a place of mental and emotional and spiritual chaos and trauma. And that's where Jonah is. And I don't think there's a stronger phrase in the scripture to identify this experience of spiritual and emotional turmoil as this phrase, the belly of Sheol. It's interesting that the idea of death in the Bible does not necessarily mean physical death. Mostly it does, but not necessarily. The Bible speaks of the power of death. Song of Solomon speaks of love as strong as death. Death is strong. There's a power of death. There's the shadow of death. Psalm 23 there's the body of death that Paul speaks of in Romans 7, verse 24. And there's the dominion of death. The Apostle Paul speaks of in the previous chapter, chapter 6, the dominion of death. And that's the dominion in which we live today in this world. And if you can think of death, as, uh, death and life as a spectrum, we have on the one side the extreme of death, the lake of fire, the final, ultimate end of those who have rejected Christ, cast forever and irreparably into the lake of fire. That's on the far end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is eternal life and immortality. And that's important. We have life now. If you're a believer here today, you have life. You have been given eternal life. That's yours. You have it right now. But you have not yet immortality. And hopefully you will not before this service ends. We have not yet immortality. We're waiting for that day when we will have life and immortality after the resurrection. But in between that, while we're on this earth, there's this dominion of death. And that's a hard place to live. That's a hard place to live. 
And there are times in our experiences when we're dragged closer to death, to the shadow of death, into the belly of Sheol. We're dragged into that dark place. And as Christians throughout our life, we fluctuate, oscillate between these two spectrums. But as Christians, we always have life looking towards the light. And the goal of the Christian is to move away from death. Move away from death spiritually. Now, it's, it's, it's good often to face into it, to lean into it. That's, the, that's what the preacher said in Ecclesiastes. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of, of rejoicing. John, the Lord Jesus himself, and John tells us, unless something dies, it cannot live. And so we're in this realm of death. And we will die with the hope of eternal life. That's the hope. That's the hope. But at this time in Jonah's experience, Jonah finds himself in the belly of Sheol, in this realm, in the power and shadow of death. And look how he describes it. Verse 2. Out of my distress. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Verse 4. Driven away from your sight. We can relate to that very often. In the deep, in the valley of the shadow of death. As if, as, as if it were in a very real sense of being driven out of the sight of God himself. in verse 5 for the waters closed in over me to take my life and it seemed that the threat of his physical life was very real that he could in fact lose his own life and that there would be in verse 6 a finality to it that it would be forever have you ever been in that experience, beloved, where, where you're in the valley of the shadow of death and you're going through a trial, you're going through the valley of humiliation and it seems that there's no end, that the light at the end of the tunnel keeps being put out and there seems to be no end and it seems that it could go on forever. And that's when the psalmist cried, How long, O Lord? How long? And very often in the Christian experience, it is more, it is easier very often to experience a short, intense trial than a less intense trial that's elongated, that's drawn out, that seems never to end. And this is where Jonah finds himself. Look at verse 5. He felt that the weeds were wrapped about his head. That's how Jonah felt. Now, how did Jonah endure that? How did Jonah endure that intensity of a trial? What was it that enabled Jonah, this disobedient, 
prophet. And there, was, there were elements in his life that were unsavory, in his disobedience and his rebellion. But when the rubber hits the road, he was a child of God. And we, we learn from this prayer how Jonah endured this period of affliction in the belly of Sheol. And in times of affliction, God brings his people back to two main means of grace. And if you're going through affliction today, it is important that you're brought back to these two main means of grace. The word of God and prayer. God brings us back to the basics. The basics. And that's what Jonah, that's what enabled Jonah in the time of affliction. When he really, when he realized, when he realized how to pray. Very often we learn to pray in the time of affliction. Very often we learn what the word of God is actually saying and the depths and the profundity of the word of God. We learn that only in the time of affliction. And prayer in those times is not, not, just, a, a, not just a practice of Christianity. Not just a religious practice, but there's a utility to it. It means something. It does something. It is useful. It is profitable. It has a purpose. Right? That's when we learn the purpose and power and value of the Word of God and prayer in the times of affliction. Jonah here learned how to pray like he had never prayed before. He was a stubborn man. He refused to take, to do the will of God, filled with prejudice against the Ninevites, the Gentiles. And he rushed in his disobedience away from God. And rather than pray for guidance, he ran. Even when he was on the boat, remember the, 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 the captain of the boat came down into the, the lower part of the boat and asked Jonah to get up and pray for safety. When Jonah should have been leading them in prayer, the, the captain of the boat was asking him to pray. So we know from the previous story that Jonah was not a man given to pray, to prayer. But here he learns to pray. Like he'd never prayed before. And God had to bring him down to, to teach him that. God had to bring him down. God had to bring him into that place where he was so disoriented. He didn't know where he was. Literally, in the belly of a whale, swimming about Mediterranean Sea. He didn't know where he was. And yet he says, he says, Verse 7, verse 4, and then verse 7. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I will, look, I will again look upon your holy temple. This is a man of God. 
who knows that God had purpose to dwell in the temple. And that's where they would go to pray. He says the same in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But Jonah didn't know what direction he was going. Disoriented in the bottom of the sea, down at the roots of the mountain, according to verse 6. And he looked, in other words, he didn't know where Jerusalem was geographically, but he knew where God was. He looked beyond Jerusalem. He looked beyond the bricks and mortar of the temple. He looked beyond the, the facade of external religion. And he found God in the place of prayer. In God's eternal dwelling place. And it was there that he wrestled with God. It is there that he wrestled with. It is important for us to remember and to learn very often what prayer is. And it's often said that it's not ticking off a few boxes like a shopping list. Prayer is wrestling with God. We teach our children not to talk back, and that's good. But as you read through the Bible, I think... God wants us to talk back. God wants us to wrestle with them. God wants us to argue with them. God wants us to bring our troubles, our trials, whatever it is. God, let me say it respectfully, God is big enough to handle, to bring our troubles to him. Come, he said, let us reason. Let us argue it out. Let us duke it out. God is not afraid. Let me, let me be very clear. God is not afraid of any trouble, any trial, any scruple you have with life or with him. Not afraid of what you can bring. And you read through the scriptures and many men or women in scripture have brought, brought uh, charges and troubles and trials and anxieties and inconsistencies and brought them to the Lord. I think of Joshua in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 7. He says, Lord, we've just finished at Ai here. We've, we've been defeated at the city of Ai. And Jonah, Joshua comes and says, Lord, what's happening? What are the people of Canaan going to say? They're, we're going to turn her back. And what are you going to do with your good name? So you see how Joshua brings back this argument to God. What are you going to do for your name if we're defeated here? Beloved, argue with God. Bring your, bring your reasoning and arguments. Bring your trials. Reason it through with him. Get before him. And don't be, don't be so inhibited. Let me put it this way. Don't be so inhibited about getting the right words. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Don't be so inhibited and held back and hemmed in by this religious religiosity of getting the right words to bring to God. I think that's our problem very often. We're afraid. We're afraid to come to God and just speak our minds. When God already knows your mind. But he wants, you, he wants to hear it. And he wants you to duke it out with him. 
because he has the answers. He has the answers. There's not a trouble, there's not a trial, there's not an affliction that you can't bring to him. Because he has the answers here. And that's what Jonah did. He brought to the Lord his trouble. And then he not only brought to the Lord his trouble in prayer, but we discover from the prayer itself how heavily he relied on the Word of God. I've already said that there are ten times, at least ten times, in this short passage of eight verses of the prayer where Jonah is quoting directly from the Psalms. I'm not going to go through them all this morning. Uh, you can do your own research. <laughs> but ten times in these short verses. Remarkable. Remarkable. He's praying Scripture. And I'm really taken, especially by, by verse 5, which is, which is interesting, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the, at the roots of the mountains. They couldn't get any lower. He's right at the roots of the mountains. And the weeds are wrapped about my head. And he's quoting there uh, in the first part of that verse from Psalm 40, verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And the psalmist there, it is interesting that, that, that Jonah uses this idea of weeds. And I'm thinking, now, does Jonah mean by the weeds that the weeds are wrapped about his head like his iniquities have come in upon him and have wrapped, like his, the hairs of his head have been wrapped about his head as he plays on the words of the psalmist. But he relied on the, on, the, on the words of the psalmist and he knew scripture. He wasn't, let me put it like this, he wasn't opening the, his Hebrew Bible in the belly of the wheel. Right? He hadn't got a scuba version of the Hebrew Bible. It was in his heart. It was in his head. And he knew it. You might think as you read Scripture, this is just an aside, but you might think as you read Scripture, well, you're not really benefiting, it's not really getting there. And day after day, and you're wondering how much of it you're taking in. But I think well, as time goes on, we take in more than we give ourselves credit for if we're reading it. It's been stored away. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't actively memorize and actively study and actively meditate upon it. But as, if, if we're reading it, it's, it's being stored in our hearts and minds. And the Lord can and does bring those verses, those scriptures to mind as we need them. And when we pray the scriptures as Jonah did here, what we are doing essentially is reliving the experiences of men and women who've gone before. We're associating with them. And we're associating them with us. And we, we are realizing that we are not the only ones. Have you ever felt 
You're going through an affliction, a, a trial, that you feel you're the only one who's ever suffered like this. It's not so. It is not so. Jonah is praying the words of the psalmists and thereby identifying with them. They had suffered like him, emotionally and spiritually and mentally. They had been in the belly of Sheol, like Jonah. And now he's playing off their words. We are not only reliving the experiences of the psalmists, but we are praying the very word of God. We're identifying with the God of heaven by praying his words back to him. And when we pray scripture, we are taking hold of the tools that God has given to us for us to cultivate comfort and peace and tranquility in our hearts. You think of it. When you pray scripture back to God, you're taking hold of the tools that God has given to you to cultivate. You're right here yesterday cultivating the lawns and the gardens, the flower beds. These, the, the scriptures of truth are the tools that God has given to us for us to cultivate our own hearts with the grace of comfort and peace and joy and love. And so how did Jonah endure? By prayer and the word. Now how did Jonah pray is the last thought I'll bring before us this morning. How did Jonah praise? The Christian life is not just about enduring. It is not just about hunkering down and gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and just hoping that it will be all over soon. That's not a Christian method of living. The Lord has given us grace and gives us grace to be more than conquerors. He has given us grace not just to endure. And this is the language of the New Testament. That he who endures to the end will be saved. If you're a a professing Christian, your goal, beloved, is to endure to the end. Your goal is to be prepared for whatever trial, affliction, comes your way so that you are able to endure, that you are fitted spiritually and mentally and emotionally to endure to the end, to hold on to the Lord, knowing that He primarily is holding on to you. And that's our goal, not just not just to endure, but throughout life, but to rise above that to another level of enjoyment in the Lord. Not happiness. There's a difference between joy and happiness. And you might be very unhappy, but very joyful in the Lord. Happiness is related to what happens, quote-unquote, It's related to circumstances. You see the the correlation between the two words of happiness and that which happens to us. That's circumstantial. You might be very unhappy with your circumstances. You might not like your circumstances. But the Christian 
whether he likes or dislikes the circumstances, is to know and rest on the joy of the Lord in the midst of the circumstances. That's our goal. And that's what God gives grace towards. And that's what God gave Jonah, was the grace not just to endure and wait on that vomiting whale to put him out on the shores, but to come to praise, to come to praise. And you look at verse 2, and I want you to see the, the, the connection between verse 2 and verse 9. I called out to the Lord in out of my distress, and he answered me. Then verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving will I will sacrifice to you. Now you see those two things? Out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And he gets to the point throughout the psalm, throughout the prayer, to the place where he can give thanks to the Lord. Because he knows that God has a purpose. God has a purpose. And he knows and he has come to realize that God cast him into the depths. That's what he says. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. This is of God. Throughout the book, God is preeminent as the sovereign over everything. God hurled, I'm not going to look to the text for the sake of time, but God hurled a great storm to, to bring the ship into the storm. That's the word that is used. He hurled this storm out on the ship that Jonah was in. He appointed a fish. God appointed a fish. That's the word that is used. And that word appointed is used repeatedly in chapter 4 to speak of God not only appointing the fish, but appointing the, the, the plant to come up, appointing the worm to eat the plant, and appointing the east wind to scorch Jonah. God appointed everything. Because God uses his creation. Everything Everything around us, everything in his creation is at God's disposal for our good, for our development, for our strengthening, for our comfort, for our deliverance. And Jonah recognized that. Jonah recognized that. The purpose of God. And he recognized then, as I said before, that God was not punishing him that the fish was a deliverance. He says this, that the Lord answered, answered his prayer. And then he says at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that, the word salvation is, the word deliverance can be can be used to speak of evangelical salvation, salvation of the soul. It can be used also to speak of deliverance on, a, on, a, on an earthly level. And I think it means all of the above in this context. In, in the immediate context, it is 
Jonah's deliverance from a watery grave. In the broader context of the book, it is the salvation of the Ninevites. It's from God. It's from God. And Jonah, beloved, rested then, not only on the purpose of God, and this is what brought him to the praise at the end of his prayer, to praise God, he rested, not only on on the fact that this was the purpose of God, but on the fact that he hoped, he hoped in the mercy of God, in the mercy of God. And this is why he prays. He hoped in God. And this is what he says in verse verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is, what, this is how Jonah endured the belly of Sheol. This is how Jonah was brought to praise God. He came to realize and to offer thanksgiving for the fish that he thought would be his grave, that he thought would be his end, he came to realize it was actually his deliverance. And he came to praise God that it was not actually his end, but God was actually working with him, correcting, constructing, constructing in the belly of the fish this prophet who had ran from him. And then this, beloved, points to the resurrection. Another huge subject. Our time is gone, so I'm not going to go any further. But this points to the resurrection, and Jonah is unique also as among the prophets of Israel, as the only prophet with which Christ himself identified. The Lord Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And so the Lord identified with Jonah because Jonah was a type of the resurrection. Listen to this. Listen to this. Jonah was a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection and his resurrection. At the roots of the mountain, verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. You, or yet you brought up my life from the pit. How can he pray that? He's praying this within the, within the, the fish before he's been vomited out. This is a statement of faith. Understand that. This is a statement of faith, yet you brought my life up out of the pit. And Jonah, by faith, states that the Lord will deliver me. He will bring up my life out of the pit. And in that restoration from the, from the death in the belly of the fish, pointed to Christ's resurrection. But let me say this. And our resurrection. But let me say this. Every deliverance. The gospel, the gospel, beloved, is not just the the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross takes away our sins. The gospel is much more. Much more. Much more inclusive in, 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 in what Christ had done. It is the life of Christ on earth. 
the grace of Christ, the, the, the Spirit-filled man who came to live for us and to have faith for us and to trust the Father for us. It was his death which was an atonement for our sins. It was his burial, his descent into the grave, into the lower parts, where he was forsaken by the God, his Father, for our sins. It was his resurrection, the justification, justified by his resurrection, whereby he defeated death that Adam had brought us into. Death is defeated. When Christ came up out of the grave, Satan was defeated. Absolutely and totally defeated. And he knows now that his time is short. And while we live in this realm of, of death in which we live before, before our physical death, before the coming of Christ, before our resurrection, while we live in this realm, the shadow of death, remember that every deliverance God's, God gives to you points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is an acknowledgement that Christ has risen represents to you that Christ has risen and he is delivering you. It's the same idea that the apostle Peter, when the Lord Jesus spoke to Peter, when, remember when Peter cut off the, the ear of the, of the guard and the Lord said, when you are converted. Well, that throws in a curveball into our understanding of what conversion is. But that's an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting insight into what conversion actually is. There is the act of justification where we are converted to Christ. He has purchased us. And there is a legal, as it were, a legal transaction between Christ and the Father. He has bought us, bought us with his blood. We are justified. Then we enter into the process of sanctification. And in that process of sanctification, we are being converted incrementally. Aspects of our lives are being converted. The old is being chipped away. Our hearts are being renewed. Our minds are being renewed. We are being converted. Until we look to the end, and Paul said, when you will be glorified. That's the gospel. And my hope this morning, beloved, is that we will be enabled by God's grace, by God's grace, to see our sufferings in the broader context of God's purpose for his people. And, that in, and seeing that, and seeing the risen Christ, and the spirit of the risen Christ living within us, resting on the word of the living God, that he will enable us not just to endure, but he will enable us to praise him in the midst of the belly of Sheol. Amen.